Welcome to the Leadership Looks Like podcast. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. Sponsored by Leadership Excursion Company and recorded from The Coop, located in Summerlin, Las Vegas. Join us as we explore personal stories of leaders who are making incredible impacts in their businesses, lives, and communities. Get ready to be inspired, see things from a new perspective, and learn new tools to help overcome challenges. This is what leadership looks like. Today, we welcome middle school teacher and assemblywoman Brittany Miller. In this episode, Brittany gives us a glimpse into what it's like being a politician and what she does to juggle both of her careers. If you're interested in running for office or are curious to learn about politics in general, you'll love this episode. Enjoy. Brittany, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Cree. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So tell me about your day. What happened today? What did your day look like? It's it's a Monday. It's a Monday. It's the Monday before starting the last week before winter break. Right. So um, my day starts at 5.30 a.m. when I get up. I get to work by 7.30. The kids were pretty amped up. Everyone knows it's the last week. Uh, But sixth graders are pretty... They're a little anxious. This is the first time they're going into actual midterms and final exams. So um, pretty much it was a typical day, and then I finished work and I drove here. Yeah. Yeah, I remember sixth grade. I remember being nervous about that. Going into your first, you know, like, I think I'm about to be an adult. I think so. I think so. I I was still in elementary school in sixth grade when I grew up. So Okay. I didn't have that that midterm kind of energy until actual seventh grade. Yeah. So what subject do you teach? I teach English. Okay. And how long have you been teaching? Seven years. This is year seven for me. All right. Mm-hmm. And now from what you have told me before we started recording, <laughs> you have done a number of other things in your career. What What have you been up to? What have I been up to? I have done a number of things. I I started with... I have a bachelor's in criminal justice. So that was sort of my first intent uh, when I graduated. And I ended up working in welfare to work programs. And that led to, I then worked in the public schools. I basically, for the most part, been in program development. So the person that takes something from an idea to actually developing a program until you actually have a full-fledged, funded, employed, working Program And I did that uh, many different things in the public schools. I've worked in welfare to work field. I ran a prisoner reentry program. I also have banking experience as a bank trainer. And then seven years ago, I became a teacher. Okay. I have some questions about your <laughs> career real quick. So can you walk us through one of the product development projects that you worked on just to give uh, the listeners an idea of what that really looks like? Sure. Uh, one of the largest ones that that is still around today is back in the late 90s, we were, and this is all going back to Michigan, uh, one of the first school districts, I think it was the second year the grant was out, which was the 21st Century Community Learning Centers. And so we were able to um, obtain money from the federal government and with that start an after-school program. And so that was something that I worked on. There was a team of three of us that worked for a year before the program. You know, it took months and months to write the grant proposal, you know, get the funding, develop the program, every aspect from 
staffing to training to what the program would actually look like. And so once this program actually started, we had eventually we were in we were in a small school district, but we were in four schools with almost about 385 students, a staff of about 85. And what it was was a full-fledged, it was almost like a complete school after school. So students went in and they had a three hours after school, an hour of academic assistance, an hour of some type of social enrichment. Um, and then, in, and when I say social enrich, enrichment, I really mean like character building okay. class. And then an hour of some type of sport or art, some fun activity. And then they had, they received a meal and they were bused home. That funding was, has still been around. So that was the most significant where I actually started from ground zero. Another program was with the prisoner reentry. And again, funding from the federal government where I came in. And in that case, I actually had the, the agency had actually secured the funding, but I literally had six weeks to get the program up and running off the ground. And they were like, can you do that? Absolutely. I can do it. So I, uh, had a program up and running, fully employed participants, ready to go within six weeks. Wow, that's impressive. Mm -hmm. So in both of these scenarios, who was your employer? Was it um, the school district or a private agency? In 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 the, With the after-school program, it was a public schools, okay. a school district, and then the uh, prisoner reentry was a health and human service agency. Okay. So in order to implement something so quickly... Um, you've got to be able to look at some sort of information and kind of know how to make decisions. Mm -hmm. What type of information were you exposed to that really helped move that along? In that case, what it was was it was just experience. Okay. Because I had had the years of experience at this at this point, and I'm a very, um, I like to say, a point A to point B to point C to point D kind of person. I'm a person who can really connect dots. So when I look at you know, and actually, I never even knew that program development was even a field or an aptitude. <laughs> you just sort of end up there. But it's that person that can take something from an idea or a dream. And and we have dreamers that dr dream up creative, um, you know, imaginative things. And then the person who says, oh, I can make that happen for you. Mm -hmm. And this is how we go about it. So at the time when I walked in, they had had the funding, but they were actually at risk of losing it, I believe, if they didn't, according to the federal government, have it up and running by a specific date. It was this for the prisoner reentry. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just came in and and talked to the stakeholders and and read the proposal and understood the plan of what where they wanted to go with it. And then I just get to work making in in my mind it's all like a puzzle piece, you know, um human resources and personnel is one puzzle piece. Training is another. Uh, community building is another. Services are another and and just go from there and put it all together and so in that case, it was experience. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Especially to get something going so quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so product development, just just so we can be a little more clear about this. So let's say you're working for Apple and mm -hmm. your product is the iPhone. Mm -hmm. So your job would be to really oversee the product development associated with that that single product. And it's, it's very high level, I understand. Um, for you, it might be different, but just so listeners can relate to mm -hmm. what product development might look like. And mine is more specific program development. Gotcha. So I think that's still a little different than a product. True, it, true. It, you know, taking something, actually creating 
an actual product as opposed to a program. I think there are some similarities, but I, there, there's probably some differences as well. Yeah, good point. Good <laughs> point. So um, what made you decide to stop working as a program developer? I, I don't know if I decided to stop doing that. Yeah. Um, I, I Actually, what it was was I moved to Nevada. And so when I moved here and I kind of looked around and th- there weren't the same availabilities at the time. And so I was actually hired as a bank trainer at the time. And so that was the job that I, my family had already moved out here. So I sort of followed everyone out. And I did that for a couple years. And I just started to get, I'm really public service at heart. So I appreciate the fact that I've had some corporate experience and some financial experience, but my heart really pulls for public service. So being here and my sister was a teacher here and hearing kind of the challenges that go on here in our schools um, and with our education system, I just really felt that yearning to jump in. I'm not a person who just complains or just kind of makes opinions. I really wanted to know what I could do to help out. So that's kind of where I felt led and I felt that they needed me. So I went and became a teacher. Wow. All right. So when you worked for uh, corporations or in corporate America, mm-hmm. um, you talk about being solutions based. So in your role uh, in those, you know, in the pro- in the projects that you spoke about or the programs, programs that you spoke about, how did you influence the groups around you or the people around you to really be solutions-based so that they could turn over a project in six months? What What is your secret sauce? I, I, I think it really comes first with buy-in. And to when, when you're asking people, and I'll use the prisoner reentry program, for example, we hired all experienced social workers and case managers and you're asking people for the most part to leave current jobs to now in this case come into something that's brand new just getting off the ground what is the security what is this really going to look like and i think it was about one you have to have excitement about it like anything else you have to have excitement also having a well laid plan so that people know that you are, that you are prepared and this is legitimate um, but I, I think it's really about buy-in and just leadership and getting people to trust in you. Mm-hmm. And when, when they trust in you, they can trust in, in your program or in whatever you're trying to deliver. Right. And as far as leadership goes, so what do you think are the most important traits that a leader should possess? First, I would say integrity. Okay. <laughs> so first, I would say integrity. I would then, because we want to trust our leaders. Mm-hmm. So first, integrity, also ability, as well as a vision, but yet someone who is flexible, willing to change with the times, willing to listen to others, especially if you're in a leader position, leadership position over other people. Say, for instance, you're the administrator, you're the manager, and you're managing a team. You need to be willing to listen to people uh, as they talk about their struggles or their concerns. You also sometimes, you need to be courageous. You need to be able to sometimes make some hard choices and hard decisions. Yeah, and just be there for your for your team. Yes. Yeah. And and, and I would even add be protective. 
Okay. In a, in a sense. I think one of the things, one thing I know I've always wanted from my leaders is that sense of protection, that they, that they will stand in front of you and, and they will actually be there to protect you. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, do you mean um, like if you mess up or make a mistake or, or something like that, or just that they're there to support you? Yes, you I, would, I would say, well, you know, we all make mistakes. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and, and I can't say that all mistakes could be um, excusable, or but the fact that just in leadership that they have to be willing to take the hits too. Gotcha. You know, and, and they have to know the job from the ground up too. And they have to uh, be willing to put themselves out there and not just let you let everyone underneath them get run over by the bus. So right, right. And then you talk about organization. Mm-hmm. It's another thing that stood out to me while you were um, talking about the programs that you worked on. Did you use any tools or any type of a methodology to really organize everything for your team? I write a lot of out a lot of outlines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't okay. know. It's pretty in or, a pretty organic process. It's uh, you know I I just take it chunk by chunk, but there's no actual methodology to it. Like I said, it's an aptitude that gets developed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and how does that how how do you translate that for your team? So you're working with people who may not have the same experience level mm-hmm. that you do, and. Again, you are turning projects over sometimes in six weeks' time, mm-hmm. you know, getting people on board, getting that buy-in. You know, how are you communicating and organizing all that information so that your team knows exactly what to do and when to do it? Well, I think because the benefit of being a program developer is when you come in from the ground up, you're you're building and developing it as you go. So mm-hmm. you're coming in with all that rich information that you're actually able to share with everyone. So with the programs that I did develop, I also did all the training, all the personnel training, all the new hire training, all the actual job role training, because I had the vision and I was developing what all of that would look like. So I was also the person delivering it. So I think it's more authentic and uh, more accurate that way. Yeah, definitely. All right. So now you are teaching sixth grade. Mm Mm-hmm. English. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what is the biggest challenge that you have as a teacher? I say day to day challenges would be, you know, we're also competing with um, with kind of a devaluing of education, and so public education, and so I don't feel that it's that socially it's as valued or that people respect it as much as they once did, that they don't see the value and importance in it. So that's something that we've taken on, or at least myself individually, to, you know, really work with the kids to help them see the value, to help them see the benefit, the advantage that they have in um, education, to help them to understand the value and hard work and and doing their best and trying their best and that this isn't just a place that you come to every day because your parents make you get up and come. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that this is really an investment in your future. You're planting seeds into your future. And, and while, you know, I remember sixth grade very well in sixth grade, you don't necessarily have a lot of control over that much in your life. You know, Many kids still have people telling them what to eat, when to eat, you know, what to wear. You know, you're a kid. You don't have a lot of control. But the one thing you actually do have control over is your education. And and that's the one thing that the kids really, that, that they own and they can really um, 
you know, claim as their own. So I, I always work to get that buy-in with the kids so that they understand how precious it is and that when we're in these four walls together, it's, it's really about them and their education. Yeah. And uh, it sounds to me like being a teacher was not in your plan, was not in your <laughs> career plan. Or was it? You know, it's, it was in, I remember in, when I was in junior high, you know, and they start the career development and, and what are you going to do? And I, I remember saying to my counselor, and I had teaching as like two or three, and my counselor in junior high said, oh, no, 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 no. If teaching isn't your number one choice, then don't do it. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but I also think there that a lot of kids emulate that because that's the one profession that every kid is exposed to. So most kids, if they um, are exposed to any career, it's teaching. So, you know, I used to go home and play school and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, okay, he's right, and just kind of let it go. Um, but still ended up here. So Yeah. yeah. And, and how do you like it? I like it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really... I really take a lot of pride in, you know, um, in in what I do because, you know, I, I just try to look at our society as a whole without education. Where would we be? I mean, it, it really is the foundation of our society. There's certain, there are certain institutions that in our society we could not function without, and education is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's incredible. And, um you know, you certainly seem like someone who really cares and mm -hmm. it's very meaningful for you. So you are the Assemblywoman for District 5 mm -hmm. here in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And um, how on earth did this come about in your life to to take the dive into politics? Well, I, I think the same thing like with um, teaching. It was always there. And then one day it just, ha I don't want to say it just happens, but I guess it's just kind of activated. Um, I've always been involved and interested in politics since I was a kid. Uh, my grandmother used to take me out canvassing when, since the time I was about 10 or 11. Um, and, you know, back in Michigan, I used to volunteer on a lot of campaigns. And so I was always interested and involved. And it, professionally, the way my career has been, it's always predominantly in public service and always working with state and federal entities, you know, you're exposed to a lot and I don't know. Just, <laughs> it just <laughs> I get, yeah. Just another thing to, it's, it's always interesting because people ask you and it's not always an easy um, answer to articulate. You find yourself not just interested, but passionate about certain things. And when you're a person who, wants to contribute and wants to give back and, and wants to do for others, you find yourself that here's another avenue that I can actually help people and, uh, you know, help people's lives and help the people of Nevada. And so, yeah. And, you know, when I think about politics mm -hmm. or even being an assembly woman, you're, you have to campaign, you know, you have to raise money. Um, I, I didn't realize until you and I sat down face to face that, you know, maybe you have a job too. Right. <laughs> I had no clue. So, so you are working as a teacher. Yes. Which well, arguably is a 365 day a year, you know, lots of hours mm -hmm. um, in, in itself. Mm -hmm. And now you're, you're doing this as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, we um, in Nevada, we're, we are a part-time legislature. Okay. So um, while there are, of course, other states where that is your full-time job, here most of us are working, you know, other jobs as well, in addition to being assembly members. Well, that's good to know. Uh, maybe I won't be so hard on my uh, assembly people <laughs> in my district. Now, where is District 5 in Las Vegas? District 5, our most northern end, so we're just outside of it. Our most northern end is Alta. Okay. And the most southern end is Flamingo. Our most western, generally our western borders are uh, Fort Apache. And then south of Sahara, we would go up to Grand Canyon. And then we actually touch Hualapai at Flamingo, our most... Uh, Eastern Point is Durango, but actually we go as far as as far east as Torrey Pines and Jones. Oh wow, mm-hmm. that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. Do you live in District Five? Of course. Is that a requirement? <laughs> yeah. That's, okay. That is a requirement. Yes, and I'm just going to remind everybody: this is not a political podcast, <laughs> so these these are just general um, questions yeah. that I have of you, and we won't yeah. dive into any issues or topics today, which okay. is probably pretty good. But um, so yes, I'll, I'll just follow up because I know this is. Um, uh, sometimes there's a lot of questions about it in general. Mm-hmm. And and one question I received often when I was campaigning is, well, what's assembly? And so I would explain to people basically, well, it's the House of Reps, the House of Representatives for our state. You know, of course, every state has their own version of Congress, and we have a state Senate, and we refer to our house as the assembly. And then, of course, everyone goes, oh, okay, of course. And our assembly districts are about 65,000 people. So when you say, wow, that's pretty large population-wise, so we're about 65,000 people each. Okay, so how do you make decisions for 65,000 people? What is that even like? Decisions in terms of voting? Sure. A lot of it is, um, what I really appreciate about Nevada is there's a very... It, there's such an accessibility to us. And I think that's because we are part-time. We still live, except for the 120 days where we move up to Carson City every other year. We're still living in our neighborhoods. We're still working. Um, and so a lot of it is just receiving so many phone calls and emails from constituents about this is what I think or this is what I feel or what can you do or I hope, you know, I'd like you to vote this way. So that's really a lot of it. Yeah, and you're just depending. Are you depending on phone calls from your constituents, or how do you keep a, a your finger on the pulse as to what people really want? People, um, you know, talking with people, and sometimes having coffee sessions with people, staying connected with different uh, groups within the party. But when it comes to constituents in general, it really is phone calls, emails. I we receive those things daily from mm-hmm. people. When were you elected? <clears throat> Last November 2016. Okay. And how long is your term? Two years. Two years. Mm-hmm. So this year? Next 18. year. Yes. Okay. 18. Yeah, we're still in 17. Oh, so. right, right. <laughs> yes. Um, but so 18, you are up mm-hmm. for election again. Mm-hmm. And when do you start campaigning? Um, or does that ever stop? I, You know, essentially it doesn't. I, I mean, if you talk about campaigning in terms of being engaged and responsive to people, then that, of course, never stops. Um, But if you're talking about actively, you know, knocking on doors and making phone calls and stuff, that will be, um, you know, in the next, sometime this spring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what does that look like for you, campaign season? 
it looks like I get up and I go to work and I come home and I eat something and then I go knock on doors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's nights and weekends you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Do you have a team who's helping you make phone calls or? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. You always need a team of uh, supportive volunteers that help you with that. And how do you recruit volunteers for your campaign? How do I recruit? Um, <laughs> I, again, I don't know if that there's a way to really articulate that. A lot of times, it's, you know, people in your network, your friends and family that support you. Um, people sometimes will, you know, seek you out. You know, sometimes I, I've also had constituents that were, when I was running the first time, just, hey, I really support you. I live here. You're the one I want. Can I help you? Yeah. What are the biggest issues in your district? Um, the biggest issues, um, of course, we know that Education, jobs, and safety are in every district. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in my district, per se, we've had a lot of um, solar was a big issue. Um, and also there is an increase of um, home, in, you know, burglaries and those types of things. So yeah. that's been... So you have so you're you have an issue in your district, mm-hmm. and um, you have an idea of what the opinion is of your mm-hmm, constituents. Mm-hmm. So what do you do with that information? Are you talking about how does it actually become a? <laughs> yeah how how do you go about solving the issue? Usually, what happens in a general sense is someone has a concern. Or sometimes people have an idea, too, because that's the other thing. People will approach you and say, hey, I've got this great idea. So it's not always people are approaching us with problems. Sometimes it's problems, sometimes it's concerns, sometimes it's great ideas. What I can do from um, that point, after a full discussion and understanding of um, what their thoughts are, is then have it researched, kind of going through. We work with the Legislative Council Bureau and they can research ideas, research laws, what's been done, what hasn't been done, what can be done. And uh, from that point, with that information, actually taking it to an idea to introduce a bill. And bills don't always have to be, the ideas don't always have to be as grandiose as people think. Sometimes they can just be solution-based. So um, then you can present a bill and then go through the process that way. Of course, with that, you need a lot of support, you know, to make sure that your your constituents support you and that there is support with that. But in at least in Nevada, I can say it's literally that simple that yeah. somebody can call their elected and say, hey, I, I want to talk about this and what can we do about this? Right. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard people talk about politics in general and mm-hmm. it's, you know, we often focus on um, the presidency or or those positions that are, are much higher. Mm-hmm. But really, um, you have a chance to impact people in their day-to-day Absolutely. And I think that's the thing with um, local politics is at the state level down to the city level. You know, these are the people who are making the decisions that impact your daily life. So from absolutely city to county to to state, absolutely. Yeah. In 2016, when you were elected, Mm -hmm. what percentage of the voting population in, um, you know, in in Clark County Mm -hmm. uh, voted? Do you know that number offhand? It, for the county, at first I'd say not enough. <laughs> right. It, but it's that's that's an issue. It's yeah. so small. Not you know? enough. Yeah. Yes. Um, I can say in my district of about 65,000 people, there were about uh, probably about 25, 26,000 that voted. 
Right. So, and of course, not everyone can vote. You know, we have children, and <laughs> yeah, obviously. But um, so that's a third of your your voter mm-hmm, base mm-hmm. is is voting. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're registered. Right. Right. But. Yeah. Um, the positive is, you know, people are still registering every day. And we also have to remember, this is still a transient community. Right. So when you consider that, um, and, you know, sometimes I've known people, they've lived here quite a while before they've changed their registration. And so it's transient. And I think that that goes into it as well. Yeah. And we're really not a political town, Las Vegas, meaning... You know, I have friends who live on the East Coast, and, mm. and mm. you know, it's just more of a political environment, whereas I feel like in Nevada, and I grew up in Nevada, too, where mm-hmm. it wasn't really something that was around me. It wasn't accessible. I, I really have not become interested in politics until now, until, you know, like it affects my business. It affects – I'm a homeowner now, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. I start to realize, okay, there are things that I like. There are things <laughs> that I don't like. Oh, I can do something about mm-hmm. it, you know. Do you is, do you get that sense here in Las Vegas? I, I think that's a fair um, assumption, and I'm going to take your word on it because, again, I can't personally gauge that because I've been always ingrained in it since I was a kid. Um, but I do appreciate the fact that a lot of people – um, you know, again, there's there's some people that they just think of politics as presidential races. Mm-hmm. And like you said, until you start um as an as an adult saying, Oh, now I'm owning a home, or you know, oh goodness, I have to have my kid in this car seat until this age. Well, where did that come from? Or why is this the speed limit? Or why you know, until you start questioning things and then you realize that politics or not just politics, but how legislation impacts so much of our life. Um, and even with with young adults, young kids, I've always been one of those people that it's just all about, you know, my freedoms and my liberties and the fact that people have died for my vote and this has been fought for. And, and so every vote I cast, you know, has literally been paid for in somebody's blood. I have that kind of avenging, connected... Um, place to it. Mm-hmm. But not everybody has that passion around it. So mm-hmm. it's, but I know with even with kids, you know, you talk about, hey, some of this, you know, when it comes to, you know, your student loan or, you know, programs in college being funded so you can have a program of study you want at your preferred school, you know, even this is impact, but impacted by legislation and local government. So yeah. Oh, um, what politicians here in Nevada are you mostly working with? Which ones? Well, you could literally say, um, obviously the, the assembly I work the most with my, my fellow assembly members. Okay. And how often do you meet? Well, we are in session for again, 120 days every other year, but we are in communication Mm -hmm. on, you know, I'm not in communication with every single person on a regular basis, but it just depends on what you're working on. When I have questions, I seek out, you know, individuals that, that kind of, that may be their forte or that may be their interest or passion. So, 
Right. And then you you move up to Carson City for 120 days mm-hmm. every couple of years. So mm-hmm. what do you do with your teaching career when you do that? <laughs> um, I'm fortunate that uh, as a teacher, I could take a political leave of absence. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have a substitute probably comes in, yes, a long-term a, sub yes. will come in while you, while you are up in Carson City. Mm-hmm. That's okay. exactly what happened. Yeah. So if you are introducing a new bill, mm-hmm. um, what... Walk me through what happened. So you get a phone call from one of your constituents. They have an idea. Mm-hmm. And you say, okay, this is this is worth creating a bill. Mm-hmm. What happens from there? From there, what, what happens is we put in, it's called a bill draft request. Mm-hmm. And so we would put submit a BDR. And from there, the drafters um, within the, the Legislative Council Bureau, they will actually draft the bill draft the proposal. From there, we review it. And I'm someone who likes to work hands-on on the bills. So um, kind of working with the team with, I like this. Can we have it say this? Can we add this? Can we take this out? And of course, they're always telling you what legally can happen. Okay. So you're working with it with lawyers as well? Yes. During yes, all of this? That okay. are drafting it. Yes. Right. Up in, when I was in Carson. And so from that point, once you have the bill, you then go through the process of, you know, taking it through the hearings and having it voted on. Mm-hmm. And of course, bills are very um, fluid in the sense that they're not always going to get passed in the same exact capacity that it was written in. Um, you know, so it's like any other piece of work, still editing it, still working on it. So it goes through first that committee. So there's certain committees um and it would have to go through whatever committee committee it's related to. So obviously, if you're doing a bill on education, most likely it's going to go through an education committee. Mm-hmm. So your first goal is to get it voted out of that committee, which is your you you have a hearing, you present the bill, you explain the benefits of it. People will come um, and testify in support or against, or sometimes in neutrality to the bill. And then the people on that committee, they will cast a vote on whether or not they think it should move on to the floor so that the entire assembly can vote for it. At that point, the bill is voted on by the entire assembly. And in the the most basic of terms, it would then move to the next house, which would be the Senate, Mm -hmm. where then if the Senate votes on it, then it would become a law. Okay. And as you mentioned, Whatever you're voting on, it could change by the time it becomes law, right? Oh, absolutely, so absolutely. What, what you're looking at is just the bare bones minimum, and it could be changed. Yes, or, you know, sometimes you have to take things out of it. Sometimes you have to modify some things. Sometimes you have to add some things. Is that called compromise? I think that's called compromise. <laughs> yes, it's called compromise. If you, um, y- you know, but you have to focus on... Um, you, you know, what? what's really the goal there? Right. If there is a person out there who's actually had a bill passed exactly the way it was originally drafted the first time, I think that's pretty fascinating. I would think so. <laughs> I would, right. Yeah. I'd really like to talk to that person, but I, I don't know. I think all bills, you know, that's just kind of the process. Right. And there are multiple components of a bill also. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not just one one issue per per bill. In, in Nevada, we do one issue per bill. Oh, you do? Okay. Yes. Okay. So, oh, we do. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like, and and let's, because I know that's when we look at national politics, it seems like, and they snuck in right. all of this, you know, and, and now we're talking about 
dog catchers and we're talking about helicopters and we're talking about, you know, popcorn at the theaters and it just seems so random and all over the place. Um, no. Okay. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. I'm learning a ton today. (laughs) I appreciate you walking, walking me through this. Um, so then once it becomes a bill, then Mm -hmm. is that something that you go back to your constituents and you get to celebrate at that point? Yes. And you also are working with your constituents along the way and with other stakeholders. Because again, you need to know who supports it and who doesn't. Gotcha. Okay. And and like anything else, you can have the world's greatest idea. If there's no support for it, or there's no funding for it, it's not going to happen. So right. Right. Now you're an assemblywoman now. Do you Mm -hmm. plan on running for any other office? Are you going to... um, so this year, 2018, you'll you'll go up again. Yes, 2018, I'm running mm-hmm. for assembly again. Okay, you're a teacher. Mm-hmm. You're an assemblywoman. Mm-hmm. You, you know, teaching it in itself. I mentioned this earlier. You know, you you are responsible for those kids. You've got the parents. Mm-hmm. I know that that alone is can is a big undertaking. Mm-hmm. And now you have um, work as an assemblywoman. Mm-hmm. How do you manage all of this personally? What do you do to take care of yourself, you know, so that you're, because you have to be on all the time. Yes, yes. Um, One thing I'd say is that a lot of people ask me, how do I do both simultaneously and wear both hats? The one thing is, you know, like I tease people, if you've ever gone into a room with 40, 11-year-olds, there's nothing else you can think of at that moment but being with, you know, those students. So when I'm at school, it is, you know, I'm focused on on what I'm doing. I'm focused on the kids and their learning and their experience. Um, I, You know, it's really about time management when I leave, making sure – I just do all the things that I find are necessary. So you're able to compartmentalize your for the roles, most part, yes, the most during part. the day. Yes, yes. Sure, sure. Yes. Now, during campaign season, you're working nights and weekends, mm-hmm. probably, mm-hmm. I'm guessing. And then you're also working during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that like for you? Are you just, it sounds to me like you're just in it. It's just you've signed up for it. <laughs> you are a doer. You're, you just you're do a problem it. solver and you're doing it because that you've chosen to to be there. Right, yeah. right. I've chosen to be there. I absolutely enjoy it. Uh, sure, sometimes, um, you know, sometimes it's a lot of work, but that's what I signed up to do. Yeah. And, you know, I enjoy serving people and seeing um, change and positive things happen. So, you know, I... How do I manage it? Well, you know, you have to make a little bit of personal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but you, but you get to experience the rewards, which yes. is something that you enjoy. Yes. So, yeah. um, we just manage. I just manage the best I can. <laughs> yeah. Do you get recognized at the grocery store? Um. Sometimes it's okay. it's not as it's not as you know. We're we're pretty down to earth electeds, you know, here in Nevada. Mm -hmm. So if I get um, recognized a couple times, or I got recognized at the airport uh, the other day, but it's always kind of like from Facebook, you know, it's kind of, it's like, wait, yeah, um, yeah, from Facebook. So yeah, a couple times, but it's not like, no. It's not a life disruptor. Goodness, no. I mean, I can probably- privacy. Yes, okay. I could probably ca- count on one hand the times where like someone has actually come up and said, "Wait a minute, you're our assemblywoman, right?" Right. Um, 
Yeah, I... So people aren't running up to you and asking questions or upset at something you might have done? No. Or, okay, that's... No. That's I mean, I have more... Know. Yeah, more of the... Um, more is being a teacher, you get recognized. Sure. <laughs> um, and, and chased around stores and seeing kids with their jaws open, like, oh, she's like out in the real world. She's human? She's human. What is she doing with a grocery cart? Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, for the most part. Yeah. It, it changes again once during campaign season comes. Sure. Because then your signs are up all over the place and people are seeing your face everywhere. So there you get a lot more recognized. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you um, recall a bill that you've helped introduce that has at, has been passed and is now a law? Um, yes. There's um, actually uh, two bills. One was a bill for um, – it's interesting that when we talk about education that a lot of people are familiar with the class size limitations that we had here in Nevada – but those only went grades kindergarten through third grade. There actually had been nothing on the books from kindergarten through 12th grade on what a class size should be and okay. what a maximum should be. So I was able to um, get that law passed and, of course, had a lot of supporters. Um, the other thing, too, is I, I forgot to add, you want to have support from other electeds as well that they actually um, – you, you know, uh, sign on and say, yeah, I want to be part of this bill as well. Right. And well, so, cause you want their vote too, right? Oh, I see what you're saying. When you're introducing a bill, you want to have the support of, of others. Yes. And, okay. and that's when we talk about like co-sponsoring and gotcha. people sign on. Right. Okay. So when you look at a bill and you see multiple names, mm -hmm. maybe one person thought of it, but then those are other people that had the buy-in too. Like, yes, I want to be part of this. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was put into effect. And what was actually put into effect is that the, as a state, we need to determine what our maximum should be for um, the most effective classes, class size impacts, academic and social um, environment for kids. So the law was passed that we have to determine these. So this is another interesting point. The law, you know, you can put something on paper and say, now it's a law. That doesn't mean it just happens. So again, back to that kind of development piece. So at this point now, um, we're just working on, um, and actually I have a meeting. This is January, right? <laughs> right. Well, you have an upcoming meeting. Yeah. yeah. About, um, <clears throat> or maybe I already had the meeting. <laughs> Let's not trick everybody. <laughs> right. I feel like I'm on a late night talk show now. Or <laughs> did me, I have me, the meeting? Yeah, let me think into the future. <laughs> but yeah. meeting with the Department of Ed, yes. And kind of getting a team together in that process to determine how it's how it's going to happen. So it, it it's still a process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Just like you said, um, this could be just a, a rule at school. Let's mm -hmm. say you're saying, hey, this is, we're changing things up. This is how we're going to do, or this is how we're going to do things now. And then it's that implementation piece. Absolutely. You know, especially with the, the school district. So you are changing the limits on class size. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow. No, no. You know, it's going to take time for the school district to implement this. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, there's there's probably no limits on the amount of time. I mean, they've got to move towards that goal, correct? Exactly, right. Yeah, they have right. to show some, some progress. Because the bill was that this has to start. That's what... So, um, yeah, that's kind of, again, it, the process of it. Another one was um, 
where businesses can actually uh, volunteer on to when they re- renew or obtain their license to volunteer, kind of like a gender equality index. Okay. That they can volunteer information about what their policies and practices or benefits around uh, women are in their workplace. So that was another bill that's going to, again, help us gather, uh, you know, very rich information so that because with women, it's important to know, especially if women um, have children and things like that, like where can they work that they can be successful and and just, I guess, in an environment where they can be successful. Right. And that's a hot topic for sure mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. in in um, corporations, the political environment, um, whatever. All right. So you introduced a bill that is education related. So mm-hmm. explain to me why that wouldn't be a conflict of interest for you to introduce a bill and it impacts where you work. Right. That's a good question um, or an important question because it doesn't impact, say, for instance, my pay a promotion, I'm not individually benefiting from it. So because it's something that actually benefits the students and the the staff in the district as a whole, um, then it's not actually a conflict of interest. Right. Could you make people upset, though, when they realize that that you're the person that's making? That's a big change. I mean... There were plenty of people that voted against the bill, yes. Okay, good point. <laughs> there, there, I'll <laughs> they say have that. that opportunity. Yes, yeah, there were plenty of people that voted against that bill, um, which, again, brings in a little irony. Um, so so that's why it's not a conflict of interest. Okay. An, uh, one of the benefits of having a citizen, a citizens-led legislature, you know, or basically people that are part-time and still have – you know, one foot in, you know, just real life is that we do have certain um, skills or exposure or expertise in in certain different fields. So in the legislature right now, we have a number of different professions. It's not just, you know, people assume it's just lawyers and things like that. It's not. So we come from a variety of different work fields and everyone's able to bring their experience and their knowledge with them. Right. And it's a, I think it's important to point that out mm-hmm. because um, that's a good thing, you know. And then when you're, you're introducing bills, uh, you have the support of other people that probably draw from their different areas of expertise and um, their input and all that. And I, I would think that that would be very important. Absolutely. And it's helpful as well as a fellow legislator because everyone kind of has their niche. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, no one is an expert in every single subject. Yeah. But you know, it's like, okay, here's this, this bill, here's this question, I know I can go to this person, because they're the one that this is their field, this is, you know, so I can go to them and ask questions and things like that. So right, and get their input. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do when you let's say, let's say somebody comes to you, and they want your support for Mm -hmm. a bill, but you Mm -hmm. know nothing about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, what do you do? I have picked up the phone and called many people. I have... I will, uh, you know, listen to listen to them present the bill. Then, of course, you have the other layer of you have lobbyists coming in, lobbying for or against the bill, and I listen to them equally. And then I will listen to um, again, you know, seek out um, discussion with fellow legislators. I've also uh, will pick up the phone and 
call people like that are actually outside of this process. Mm -hmm. So I'll call someone that I know that works in that field, or if I have constituents that work in that field or different agencies and stuff so that I'm getting the, the best information I can. I also do research on the internet to find the information I can. And pretty much all of that together along with my own, um, you know, kind of, position or feeling on it kind of goes into my decision. Right. So you're pulling from multiple different places. Yeah, I would, I, you would have to. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, I mean, you could not support the bill too. Oh, absolutely. You, you know, if you, absolutely. you don't agree with it or if you don't know enough about it, it doesn't absolutely. mean that you have to um, be a champion for that person or for that, for the, for the bill in question. Absolutely. And you know, that's the one thing it's, we, we refer to it as un- unintended consequences. So when a bill's passed, certainly there's going to be people that feel like they won. Yes, our issue won. But there's also people that feel that they lost. Um, and then there's those unintended consequences. So that's what you're really trying to be proactive about, that with this bill, what are we not seeing? What could happen? Is is there any negatives to this? Who uh, How is this going to impact others? Um you know, potentially. So there's so many things that go into that. The other thing is, um, and one thing I'll say that's interesting is people don't realize that probably there more so than not, there's a lot of bills that aren't as political as partisan or partisan as you think. But we also have to remember that, um, you know, as an elected, I represent everyone in my district. Yeah. So I listen to everyone in my district. Um, regardless of what their political affiliation is. All right. So when it comes to um, really being the spokesperson for your constituents, mm-hmm. what do you do in those circumstances where you have a personal belief about something, but you are looking at your constituents and you don't necessarily agree with what they want? Um, how do you go about uh, handling that type of a situation. Oh well, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, it's kind of a threefold response. Okay. One is I really believe that I'm elected to represent the people and not just my own personal thoughts or feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, going back to supporting a bill, sometimes we support the idea of a bill, but we have to always remember that. You know, we have, we have rights, we have liberties and things like that, that we, we can't, you know, impede on. So, or maybe it's like, that's a great idea, but it's just not, we're just not kind of able to see the actual administration or facilitation of it yet. Just like, again, going back to a program, you can have a great idea. I want to do this program. I want to open this business. Okay, so how are you going to do it? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I don't know how. I just think this would be a great business or this would be a great invention. Um, but the other is when you have constituents that and, – and there was an example. There was, um, there was a situation where there was a bill that, you know, you change your mind. I've, I've changed my mind on, on bills, and, it's, and it has come from listening to my constituents yeah. and um, getting emails and phone calls and, and talking to people in the community and, and when you're doing meet and greets and they're telling you how they feel, and especially when it's a specific bill. So, yes, there was, there was times where I voted certain ways because – and really it came from what I'd say is 
the community educating me on how they felt about it. Mm-hmm. Because certain issues you didn't realize how this impacts them in their household, in their daily lives as much. And so when I was able to um, learn more about it, then I, I did vote the way the community wanted. Yeah. Which, you know, I'm thinking now, politicians get hammered about their position so much. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, 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 un, it's almost unfair because first of all, you can change your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the political climate changes, people's viewpoints change over time, you know, and as you mentioned, um, you may not be an advocate for something, but you're listening to mm-hmm. your constituents and you are standing up for them and um, voting in their favor, mm-hmm. you know, whereas down the line, you might vote differently because it's a different situation. It's a different environment, you know, whatever that might look like. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really about listening and learning and and really buying into that idea that I represent. Mm-hmm. It's not just about me. And and when you talk about changing your mind, it's, it's very fascinating because sometimes that happens overnight. Literally, you know, I take my bills home the night before, read over my bills. And, you know, as as humans, we kind of make a judgment right away. Like, ooh, I like this. Ooh, I don't like this. What's that? And then I would go into the hearing and sometimes walking in assuming I'm going to support this or or I don't want this. Then you go through the hearing and now you're listening to people and the people who are advocating for it telling and or the people who are advocating against it and telling their real life experiences and their stories and then learning more about how this impacts others and and reviewing it and kind of crossing it with the laws and and what can and cannot be done and yeah certainly sometimes your position you walked in thinking one way and you walked out thinking another way but i think that's important to know that we are flexible. We do listen. We do really try to do what's in the best interest of our constituents and the people of Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be hard. Or is it like emotional? I don't know. It's. I'm sure there's a lot that goes goes into it. There's emotions. There's mm-hmm. checking the law. There's mm-hmm. making sure that people are being heard and, and mm-hmm. all of that. So. Um, and, and I think, too, being able to, um, you know, answer, you know, people are going to have questions. So yeah. being able to respond to them. And that's what I have found that really the, the, the number one thing is responsiveness. So people want to know that. And I've had people call or email me to tell me they disagree, and that's fine. Um, and then remarkably, they were just happy to talk to you. Oh. Even though you disagreed. Yeah. Yeah. Or even though you said, um, you, you know, sometimes sometimes things are more challenging to solve and they're, they're just happy for the responsiveness and to know that they're being heard, mm-hmm. to know that someone cares. Yeah, that's a good point. I, don't, I think we all appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Generally, generally appreciated. So I'm sure there are times when you uh, are having a heated uh, discussion with with other assembly people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And um, you may not agree mm-hmm. with with certain people. How do you manage that? Do you, you know, 
I, I imagine it's it's hard not to take things personally sometimes, or mm-hmm. um, you know, you disagree. It's just so against everything that you believe that uh, you know. H- how can you not be upset about it? How do you handle those situations? Obviously, as a person, you you have to bring in your your you know you have to first respect other people, mm-hmm. and I understand that people look at things differently. People come from different backgrounds and different experiences and different professions or level of exposure. So, you know, everyone thinks differently or feels differently. So I'm pretty good. I can actually, um, when it comes to respecting others, I mean, sometimes it's hard not to take it personal, but you have to remember at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about that issue. So um, sure, sometimes we get passionate, but at the end of the day, I also think that you would want your elected to be passionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're just not always going to agree with everybody. Right. You know, it's kind of part of the job. It's part of the job. And again, you learn from disagreements and you grow from disagreements. And sometimes from disagreements, um, certain compromise comes or development comes where things actually improve, you know, end up better. Um, But. Yeah, agree to disagree, right? Mm -hmm. There's, There's that respect there, too. You're. Again, you're not always going to agree with everybody. Right. Yeah. But you're right. And I think that's that's the thing where, you know, not to take it personal, we're not going to agree with everyone. And like I try to explain to people, um, you know, sometimes the closest person to you, your spouse or your parent or your child, do you agree with them 100% of the time? No. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Most definitely not. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, you just don't agree, but you can't let those disagreements get in the way of the work that has to be done. Yeah. You can't let that get in the way because the priority is the people in the state of Nevada. So, you, you know, you can't let that get in the way. And that's where I think, you know, sometimes pride or ego could get in the way if you allowed it. But you really have to work past that, understand that we all have different opinions, but at the end of the day, what's the best move at this point for the state? Right. Now, your background is a as a program manager, mm-hmm. and also uh, you have a degree in criminal justice mm-hmm. and uh, as a teacher. How has all of that, all that experience helped you as an assemblywoman? Oh, I think it's helped immensely because um, – I've had experience in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. I've had experience in, uh, you know, welfare to work and workforce development. I've had experience in banking. I've had experience in direct and education as a teacher. So when it comes to kind of the top three issues, maybe top three or five issues that most people have education, safety, criminal justice, um, and employment, I, you know, I've worked in those fields, so I have a little experience in them. Yeah. What do you wish your constituents knew about you when it comes to your job as an assemblywoman? Oh, um, wh- what I want them to know and to shine through is that I really um, am passionate about, you know, my service to them, I, I really am a person of integrity. I really try my best. I, I am excited to be here. I'm passionate and devoted to this. Yeah, and I think um, 
you know, you've shared that you are here for your constituents, whether mm-hmm. you agree with them or not. You're, sure. you're doing this in their best interest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. All right, so we're in a political climate now where more and more people are are wanting to get into politics. Mm-hmm. What is your advice to anybody who who has no experience, but they want to be a part of the solution mm-hmm. and they, they want to run for office, whatever that might look like. Where do you start? What, what would your advice be to them? Um, my advice would be, uh, that's an interesting question since um, I kind of was that person that was just, hey, I'm going to run. Um, you know, my advice would be to first contact someone that could just really kind of maybe talk to, you know, reach out to an elected, see what it's really like. And, you know, because they can kind of, first you want to know what you're really getting into. Right. And they can also advise and mentor you kind of as to the appropriate path, who to contact, how you can actually do this, um, you know, what you, what you, what it really takes during the campaign to get elected. I think that's that's what I would advise, just yeah. talking to someone. Again, we're we're approachable, you know, you can just call or email your elected. So I would say that would be the first thing. Okay. And could you volunteer also? Is that a good way to to volunteer for a campaign or? Absolutely. Uh, You know, and a lot of times that's where a lot of people from the grassroots come from is, Mm -hmm. you know, volunteers, people who've kind of been inside, been exposed, know what it looks like, you know, and then get that desire to do it. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Well, listen, thanks so much for coming in today and uh, sharing your story and getting into the details when it comes to being a politician and really making a difference. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. To learn more about Brittany Miller and to follow her campaign, visit millerforthepeople.com. Thanks as always for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, visit the Leadership Looks Like Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Leadership Looks Like is a podcast dedicated to leaders everywhere. Our mission is to show that leaders come from all different backgrounds, ages, colors, shapes, and sizes. For more information about our project or to become a contributor, visit leadershiplookslike.org. Sign up for Fresh Start Mondays and get access to free leadership tips delivered to your inbox every Monday. To subscribe, visit leadershipexcursion.co forward slash subscribe. And finally, The Coop, Las Vegas' newest co-working location with a focus on community and collaboration. If you're a small business owner looking for office space and amenities and would like to be located in Summerlin, visit thecoopcowork.com. Until next time, continue to inspire and support one another through effective leadership. I'm your host, Cree Edholm. See you again next week.